morning, church. Remain standing for the reading of God's word, if you will. This is from 1 Peter 3, verses 13 through 17. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you're blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks for, your, for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if it should be God's will, than doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Will you pray with me? Father, you are our God from this day until the end of days. From your throne flows rivers of goodness and truth that nourishes the hope we have in your promises. We once were scattered and alone, but through the cross you have made us a people, giving us status in your house and seats at your table. Help us express and defend the hope we live by to our neighbors, co-workers, family, and friends in all gentleness and mercy. And out of the goodness and light that you have poured into us, help us in turn to do good on their behalf. So focus our attention upon you, our God, and to our calling through Pastor Jeff. Sustain his voice and his body in the power of the Spirit, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, so good to see you guys. I feel like I haven't been here forever. It's only been three weeks. You guys get some vacation time in this year? Have you? Somebody said, no, we're not allowed to do anything. We uh, planned a little family vacation up at um, Lake Ponderay, not Ponderay, uh, Priest Lake, which is almost at Canada. Like you have to drive almost to Canada to get there. But it was so remote and out of the way that we felt really good about just kind of uh, uh, being out and sitting around lakes and and doing fun things with the family. But I miss you guys. It is so, I am so glad to be back. I want to thank our associate pastors, Patrick or uh, Daniel and uh, Ryan for preaching some great sermons. Were you guys here for that? Aren't you thankful that you have such great, excellent, competent teachers? Thank you guys. I was so blessed. Uh, Just to brag on him a little bit, you know, Ryan is just about the most disciplined sermon writer you're ever going to find. So when he comes into the pulpit, man, it's tight. He's ready to go. And uh, Daniel is full of God's wisdom. And if you sat with him in meetings with us, you you would just know he's a very deep soul. And that really comes out in his preaching. And Patrick is so, he loves the application of God's word. And what I love about his preaching, man, he's just this dynamic young guy who just wants to, here's, here's how it applies in your life. And so I learned from these guys, and today uh, I'm back, so you've got to settle for me, but we're going to be looking at 1 Peter 3. We're still in 1 Peter 3, starting with verse 13. <clears throat> I want to tell you a story. You know, when I was a teenager, uh, I was a lost soul, totally gone. I was so lost. My dad had just died. And I spent that next year uh, tormented. I was tormented over where he went for eternity. And I thought for sure he had gone to hell. I grew up in a little Southern Baptist church called Faith Baptist Church. And they preached a fire and brimstone gospel. And I want to tell you, I worried about my dad every single day. My mom tried to explain to me that the last two months of his life, he gave his life to Jesus. He trusted in the Lord And he was transformed by the power of God's grace and forgiveness. As an unsaved teenager, I didn't understand that. 
<clears throat> you know, you don't. Until you've drank of it. Until you've experienced the 110 proof grace of the Lord. You don't know what it's like. And so I just didn't know. And then I encountered the grace of the Lord Jesus for myself. And as a 15-year-old kid, I was, I was a high school dropout. My mom couldn't get me to go back to school. And I mean, I confess my sins, all my hatred, all my shame. And I confess them to the Lord. And I'm telling you, he washed me through and through, right to the core by the blood of Jesus. And, and after I got saved, man, and I had this assurance of salvation... I just thought <clears throat> every person that hears this message is going to make a decision for Jesus. So I just started telling people. But I, what happened was I decided I was going to share my faith. But then I had some mentors in my life who wanted to ground me in solid Christian doctrine. So I began to voraciously read God's word. I mean, I read the Bible through and through, especially the Gospel of John. And, and my mentors began to teach me basic Christian doctrine. And so I would go out and, and meet my friends at school or people at football games or whatever, and I would get into these knockdown, drag-out conversations about the finer points of Christian doctrine. And I never won one person to the Lord about, through that means. In fact, I remember I was, it was Friday night. I was on the campus of the University uh, of Virginia or BCU. Uh, and so I was downtown, and uh, there was this guy who was a religion major. He was getting his master's degree in religion from um, the university there. And I remember he and I started dialoguing. I asked him what his degree was in. And he told me, I go, oh, you're a religion major. Then you know Jesus. And he goes, what do you mean by knowing Jesus? And then I started talking about the doctrine of the Trinity. And it turned him off right there. He's like, I don't care about that. And then I started talking to him about the Pentecostal doctrine of speaking in tongues. And he's like, I don't, he's beginning to make fun of me. He's like, that's dumb. And then I started talking about something else and something else. And he basically kicked my butt. I mean, he handed me my backside on a silver platter, on a cracker, <laughs> you know, served it up. And, and, and I felt so embarrassed. And when I went away, my mentor said to me, the guy who was mentoring me said to me, dude, you didn't even share the gospel. He goes, you argued about everything that you were interested in studying, but you didn't share the gospel of Jesus with him. And that changed me. I, just, I said, man, teach me. Teach me how. And I learned to share the simple, basic story of Jesus and how Jesus and his grace changed my life. And when I did that, man, I'm telling you, my friends started coming to the Lord. They started coming to faith in Christ. And, and I'm going to share with you why today. And it's really in this passage. <clears throat> uh, the passage we're reading today has been used as a kind of proof text to justify the development of what is called apologetics. Anybody, you've heard of that term? Apologetics, Christian apologetics is a subset of theology, Christian theology. And it comes from the Greek word that Peter uses in this passage today. It's the word apologia. And it's the words that's translated in your Bible, an answer or a defense, right? Now, 100% of the time, outside of this passage, 1 Peter 3, 100% of the time, that the Bible uses the word apologia, 100%, whether it's being used of Paul in the book of Acts, or Jesus uses it, or any other epistle, it is used in the context of someone defending themselves against false accusations in a courtroom of law. 
or a courtroom. And so, so 100% of the time, that's what it means. It means to defend yourself against false accusations in a courtroom. That's what it means. And I think that's the idea that Peter also in his context wants to convey to us as well. In Acts 22, 1, uh, it talks about P, uh, Paul who is giving his apologia, his defense of the Christian faith. In 2 Corinthians 7, 1, Paul commends the Corinthians for making a reasonable apologia, a reasonable defense of their faith. And so we're going to look at Peter's goal today. Peter's aim is very simply this. I want to put it up on the screen. And this book, this entire book of 1 Peter, here's his aim. It's for them, uh, is for, that they would be grounded and rooted in the gospel. So number one, you've got to be grounded and rooted in the gospel of Jesus. Do you know it? Can you tell a person what the gospel of Jesus is? And, and its doctrines. And then live in such a way that is compatible. Live up to your ideals. Live in such a way that is compatible or commensurate with the gospel. He told us last week, Daniel preached a wonderful sermon. Be holy. Be like Christ. Conform your life to the pattern of the gospel and be prepared to defend themselves against the character assault and assassination and questions concerning their hope in the gospel. And that's what we're looking at today. So 1 Peter three thirteen, he says this, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? Who then will harm you if you're devoted to what is good? So that's a summary statement of what he just talked about. He just told him, be holy, be like Christ. Make sure that your life is being conformed to the pattern of the gospel. Who will harm you? Who in society will harm you if you're a good person? Let me ask you a question. Do you believe that goodness really exists? It, does it? Because I think we live in a culture today that they're really not sure. <laughs> I mean, they're not sure if there really is something as objective good. What does it mean to be objective good? Objective good is, means that it's good independent of your knowledge or your affirmation of it. It's good independent of what you believe about it. There really is such a thing as objective moral values and duties. Objective moral values and duties are those demands that God has, those applications, obligations that God has for humans in society. They're the laws that God says, this is the law, you must follow it. And they're real. And the reason why most of the time, if, you're a, if you do good, if you're a do-gooder, <laughs> to use that old term, if you do good, most of the time, society won't harm you. If you don't murder people, you're probably not going to end up in jail. If you don't steal from other people, you're probably not going to end up in prison. If, if a police officer stops you and says, turn around and put your hands on the hood and you do that, you're probably not going to end up dead. I'm just going to be honest with you. If you do good, society will generally reward that. And so God has called us to live according to the value system of the gospel. There is an objective standard that God gives us. And as Christians, nobody should look more like the good than the people of God. Is that right? Amen. We are called to be the standard bearers of that which is good in our society. But what happens when you live right and you do the good that God commands in his word and society still persecutes you for it. Because, I don't, know, I don't know if you know this, I'm sure you do, but in this culture, good, some good is being called evil. And some evil is now being called good. 
So what happens when you and I do the good and we affirm the good and we walk according to God's word and our gospel, our lives are commensurate with the gospel we profess? What happens when persecution comes because of that? He says in verse 14, he says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or do not be intimidated. Oh, I want to talk about this. Let's talk about this. Suffering for the gospel and the good moral values of the gospel he says it's a blessing. Do you think it is? I feel like it's a curse. <laughs> like, I feel like I don't want to do that. I don't want to be told by my culture that to stand for what God says in his word, a human image bearer is, a male and a female created in his image, together in mutuality. I don't want to be told by my culture that's evil. Because God says it's good. God says that's good. And so that doesn't feel like a blessing. It doesn't feel like a blessing when I get persecuted for the faith, but it is a blessing. He says you're blessed. Even if you have to suffer for the value system of the gospel, you are blessed. And he says, do not fear them. Why? Now, I want to say this. If you come up to me, and I know several of you have, and I know several of you want to, if you could just catch me in the right moment, like you're afraid, you're worried, you're worried for your country this year, aren't you? I know I can see it in some of your eyes. You're concerned about your country this year. This is an election year, and I've talked to a few of you, and I know that some of you, I can hear the undercurrent of fear in your heart, and it's understandable. You don't know what's going to happen to your country. It, the, the thing seems like it's flying apart at the seams, doesn't it? Now, I, w- I want to encourage you. Here's what I want to affirm. I, I affirm your love for your country, because I love my country. God gave us this country, and I love it, and I hope you do too. I hope you're a good gospel patriot. But here's the deal. You need to know this. God has not called us to have a spirit of fear. He hasn't called us to that. Peter says, if you're persecuted for the sake of the gospel, don't fear them. Don't intimidate them. That is just, that's part and parcel of being a Christian in a nation that is drinking wickedness to its dregs, man. You know? So don't be afraid. You don't have any reason to be afraid. You don't have any reason to fear intimidation. Here's why. Because God is still the high sovereign king. Anybody who tells me they're afraid of what's going to happen in the future, I just want to say, hey, I love you. But as your pastor, I got to tell you, I think you have a weak theology of God's sovereignty. Because God is still running the show. And I want to take you back. So discipleship. Here's your homework. Discipleship. Isaiah 6. It's Isaiah 6. I've been meditating on Isaiah for a while now, and I can't get it out of my head because it's so foundational to our gospel understanding. You want to know what? You want to know what happened in the year Uzziah died? Why is that important? Why does he start his high vision of the high king of heaven by saying, in the year Uzziah died? You want to know why? Because Uzziah was an awesome king. They had a good king. They had a great king. Uzziah, other than Solomon, was the most prosperous king in Israel's history. Uzziah was a fantastic administrator. You want to talk about a well-oiled system? It doesn't get any better than Uzziah's system. And for the majority of his life, like Solomon, he was faithful to the Lord. He walked according to God's laws and his statutes. He was faithful. And then the last, and then he did something dumb. He walked in, he thought, you know, I'm an awesome king. <laughs> Which is how it always starts, right? But he thought, I can do whatever I want. 
And so he went into the temple and he offered incense in place of the priests. And God said, oh, wait a second. I said you were king. I didn't say you were a priest. And then he got struck with leprosy for the last 11 years of his life. But otherwise, he was a fantastic king, he and his son. He was. And so here, here's what Isaiah says. The prophet Isaiah, in the year, the best king we've ever had, the best king we've ever seen, the best well-run administration we've ever seen. In the year he died, and there was so much uncertainty about the future and what kings now would take over and what the international powers just on our doorstep were going to do, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. (laughs) I saw the high king of heaven seated on his throne. And what was he doing? He's running the show with his iron scepter saying, The nations will do this. The nations will not do that. You need to know whatever the situation, whatever situation comes, whatever may come in the future after November, after election day, God is still on the throne. He has not abdicated his responsibility to run this country. You need to know that. So you and I have no reason to be fearful or to be intimidated by any persecution that would threaten to come our way. Do not fear. Do not be intimidated. Be people of the gospel. So what are we going to defend? He tells us very clearly, we need to be prepared to defend the gospel. Number one, we defend the honor of a holy God. I really like the way the CSB puts this, the CSB version. Yeah, uh, it's really good. It is really good. It's really faithful. I looked at the Greek. It is really faithful to the Greek. Uh, And here's what it says. It says, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. But in your hearts regard Christ who is already the Lord as holy. Ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That sounds like that's an answer to something that's not a problem. Doesn't it? No, that's wrong. It is a problem. It's a problem in our culture today. You know how many people claim to be Christian in our culture today? 80%. 80% of Americans say, yeah, I'm a born-again Christian. Do you know how many claim that God's word is, is God's inspired, the Bible is God's inspired holy word? 47%. 47% of those same, that same group. 60, only 62% of Christians believe that Jesus is the Son of God and God the Son. 62%. Now, that may seem high, but I think it's shockingly low. That only 62% of people say that they could affirm John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Why? Because he He was God. From eternity past, God the Son was with God because he was God. You need to know that Jesus has two natures. He has a human nature, which is fully human. When Jesus was a teenager, he had to deal with acne just like you did. Okay? You need to know that when Jesus was walking through the towns of Capernaum and Galilee and all those places, when he was walking through those towns, whenever he got to his destination, his feet smelled like camel and donkey dung just like yours would. And you would have to pick it out of your sandals, man, and out of your toes. You need to know that Jesus Christ got tired. He, he got exhausted from walking 20 miles at a time. You need to know that Jesus Christ felt sadness. 
Jesus, the Messiah, got angry at sin. He felt intense sorrow and grief over sin. You need to know that Jesus was fully human. He was human in every way except without sin. And you need to know that Jesus is fully divine. This is the consistent New Testament witness about Jesus. Jesus is fully divine. He is not just the Son of God in that sense. He is God the Son. He is the fullness, as Paul says in Colossians 1.9, the fullness, all that the deity is, the fullness of the deity dwelling in bodily form. God himself incarnate as the Son, the second person of the Trinity. So that doctrine is important. Did you know 78% of those evangelical belief, beliefs also uh, believe Jesus is the first and greatest created being of God. 78% of people who say they're a Christian say that they believe that Jesus was created by God. That's a false doctrine. So, so why does Peter bring this up? Why does he say, but in your hearts, set apart, regard Christ the Lord as holy? It's because the culture is bent on, on enticing us to profane the name of Jesus. You, you and I blaspheme his name when we make him less than what he is. <laughs> we practice idolatry when we deify ourselves. That's called idolatry. From back in the Old Testament, starting in the book of Exodus, God warned them, you are not to practice idolatry. What is idolatry? The core, the essence of idolatry is when a human being deifies himself, makes himself God, not like God. And, and you need, also need to know that diminishing God, any of his qualities, any of his attributes, is super bad on the good bad scale, right? <laughs> super bad. 78% of those who say, I'm a born-again Christian, do not believe that Jesus is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. You and I are going to be tempted every single day by our culture, by the surrounding dark spiritually dark culture to redefine who Jesus is. But God has already told us who he is. So we must be prepared to defend Christ as God's unique and only son. It, be it begins with knowing who Jesus is. Do you know? Do you know who Jesus is? It's about realizing that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Do you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross? The, the book of Hebrews says, once and for all for your iniquities, for your sins. He's our Passover lamb. Do you know that it's about confessing what is true about the Lord as Savior? If I'm going to defend my hope in Jesus as Messiah and Lord, I need to know who it is that I'm serving, that I'm worshiping. Number two, we defend our trust in Christ. So in addition to that, we need to be prepared to give answers for our hope. So we set apart Christ as Lord and consider him holy internally, inside. We don't diminish his status. And then we need to be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, for the hope in this gospel, the hope in Christ. Let me ask you a question. Why did you come to Christ? Why did you believe in him? See, what my mentor was trying to teach me when I was 15 and I was a brand new Christian, 16 years old, he was trying to teach me this. Dude, the, the most powerful presentation of the gospel is embedded in your story. You go back and look at the, the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts four or five times when he wants to tell people this is what the gospel of Jesus is, it's always in the context of his story. It's always in the context of 
This is how I met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus. He knocked me off my horse and blinded me. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Right? So what if you were on your way to work and Christ just knocked you out of your car and blinded you? I mean, so he met the risen Jesus and his story of the gospel is always embedded in his own story. Testimonies are powerful. This is why your testimony of how you came to Christ was powerful. And maybe you grew up in the church and you say, look, 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 my testimony is that I don't remember any specific time that I gave my life to Jesus. Oh, I wish I had your story. Honestly, I really do. I got so much baggage I'm working on. But I wish I grew up in the church. But your story is, hey, the transforming power of God's grace over my life, you should see how it works. You should see how it works when a little kid who's six years old says yes to Jesus and grows up knowing the Lord. Whatever your story is, know your story. And so the application here would be, I encourage you to write it out. Have you ever written it out? It's, it's, just take a couple of pieces of paper, two or three pieces of paper, write out your story. Can you share it in three minutes with somebody to say, hey, this is how I came to faith. And if you write it out, then you'll know it. Then you'll know it. So we defend our trust in Christ. Why? The reasons why we came to the Lord. Maybe you came to the Lord over some heartache. A loss in your life, like I did. Maybe you came to the Lord because something about the gospel just rang true. You heard it in the church service, or a friend shared it with you, and it just rang true, and you came to faith in Jesus. Do you know? Do you remember? Can you share that? Number three, we defend the truth of the gospel message. Be prepared to answer the common accusations and objections to the Christian faith. Now, there were a lot of them in the first century. Christianity was called atheism. It was called by the Romans atheism. Uh, because it didn't believe in this panoply of gods. It only believed that there was one eternal God of the universe who has now been revealed in his son, Jesus Christ, and poured out in the Holy Spirit. So they believed uh, in one God, uh, eternally existed in three separate persons. And so because of that, they were called atheists because they didn't believe in 25 gods. <laughs> so, but do you know how to answer objections in our culture? Do you know what you would say? To someone who asks you, how can you believe? This is what a friend asked me one time. How can you believe that a dead rabbi in the first century came out of the grave? A friend asked me that a long time ago. And I had to be prepared to say, these are the reasons why I believe that Jesus the Messiah died, was buried, and came bodily out of that grave. Can you answer that question? Can you answer this challenge? Because this is the greatest one we face in our culture. Do you know what you would say if someone challenged you? How can you believe in a good God? How can you believe in God when there's so much evil and suffering in the world? Has someone ever asked you that? How can you say that you believe in God? Do you know how to answer that? Do you know how to help them to understand that the very rubric you're using to judge that as evil means that you have a standard of good in your mind? Where'd you get that from? Where did you get that standard of good from? God supplies that. Do you know how to answer that objection? Do you know what you would say if someone confronted you with alleged errors or discrepancy in the New Testament? Oh, I know what I would say. Are you prepared for that? Have you been taught? Have you studied that out? Because the vast majority of people in in our culture today do not believe that this book is the inspired word of God. They don't. Can you answer that? Are you prepared? So there are a few books that I want to give you today, and uh, I just want to suggest them to you. The first one is uh, this Nine Marks series by Greg Gilbert. Really good series here. These are small little books. One is Who is Jesus? 
This little book right here will rock your world. It's so good. You can actually take someone through this book and disciple them and help them to know who Jesus is with this book. Another one is, what is the gospel? This is a really good, essential, just basic explanation of what the gospel is and what it does and how to access it. Another one is, uh, why trust the Bible? Why should we trust the Bible? So this is by Greg Gilbert, the Nine Mark series. You can find this on Amazon.com. Excellent, excellent material. You can go through it yourself, and then you'll learn it best if you lead another disciple through it. If you take another disciple through this. Another book I want to give you here is called Reasonable Faith by Dr. William Lane Craig. So I'm a Dr. Craig fan, as as the staff knows. Um, Really? Uh, Shocking. Um, Reasonable Faith, Christian Truth, and Apologetics. This is the best book you're ever going to buy in terms of a comprehensive book to help you answer objections to the Christian faith. You and I need to be ready for that. You and I need to know some common answers to some common objections. And uh, there are some other ones. They're in my notes. You can get them on the web later. Number four, we defend our hope with kindness and calmness so we don't light our hair on fire. We don't, you know, one of the mistakes that I made in that earlier story that I told you that I opened with is that I got, I just got all flustered with the guy. The guy was drunk, right? So he's just drinking. He's about half lit. And I was frustrated with him because he was making fun of me. And I got angry. We almost came to blows. I want, I just want to tell you, that's not the right way to give your testimony. (laughs) Okay. That's the wrong way to do it. Here's what he says in verse 16. He says, yet do this with gentleness and reverence. So answer them, answer the objections, but do it with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you're accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. It is better to suffer for doing good if, if uh, that should be God's will for you than for doing evil. What's he saying here? He's saying, you, when you answer these objections, and you should, you should answer them, but you should do it with, with, uh, do it with gentleness and reverence and respect for the other person and where they're coming from. Try to practice sympathetic listening. We'll get into this in a second, but let me ask you a question. What are two current challenges that the culture is leveling at Christianity today? What have you heard? In the news, I'll tell you one I've heard, I can't even believe I've heard this, is that Christianity is inherently racist because it's a white man's religion. Did you hear that? Have you seen that on the news? I didn't think in my lifetime I would hear somebody say that. I just thought everybody knew that Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> like, I just thought everybody knew that. I just thought he grew up in Israel. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah, which is about as Jewy as you can get. Right? I have a picture in my office, and I will never take it down, though my wife begs me. I found it in a thrift store, and it is of a little European Jesus, white face and rosy-cheeked and blue eyes and golden tufts of blonde hair, kneeling, looking ponderously into the heavens, and I keep it in my office to remind me, that is the dumbest portrait of Jesus I've ever seen. Jesus is not a white dude from America. Jesus was as Jewish as it gets. He was Semitic as it gets. When they saw him walk into the synagogue, he had a turban on. He had dark coils of squiggly hair coming out of his turban. He looked like a Jew. And they, and they would say to him, uh, Rabbi, do you have something to share today? Because he looked like a rabbi. He didn't look like you and me. 
So understand this. When people level the accusation that Christianity is a white man's religion, you have, they have no idea what they are talking about. It is a Jewish faith. It is the fulfillment of the Jewish hopes and the Jewish inheritance. And now you and I, the mystery of the gospel is that the Gentile people are now invited into the gospel to share in their inheritance. Hallelujah. Praise God for that. But are you prepared to help them to see very kindly, probably less a charge than I just explained. But, but are you prepared to help them to see that? Because they need to see it. How about the cross is a symbol of hate? The cross is a symbol of hate. I've seen this one in the news. Where people are vandalizing crosses on church properties saying it's a symbol of hate. And the answer is, yeah, it is. It was a symbol of Roman hate. When Jesus was hung on the cross... He was taking the wrath of the nations, the wrath of the Roman world on that cross. He was taking that, and God accepted that sacrifice as the appeasement of his own wrath for you and I. So yeah, it is a symbol, but it has been redeemed now into a symbol of your and my salvation, our redemption. Can you explain that to a person who wants to tell you that your symbol, the cross, is a symbol of hate? It's not. Not ultimately, it's redeemed in the blood of Jesus. So this circles back now to, my, to the larger context, and, and it also helps me to circle back to my earlier story. I, I lost the argument, that first argument, because I was not kind, and I was not calm, and I was not respectful, and I just couldn't explain it very well. I couldn't explain the gospel very well, but we need to be prepared to do this. So now I want to give you some application tips. I want to help you to see how to do this. It's called gospel diplomacy. Gospel diplomacy. What is that? Um, Gospel diplomacy is how you and I proclaim the gospel in such a way that people can hear it and be saved. And what does it involve? Gospel diplomacy involves seeking to listen, not only to be heard. Seeking to listen, not only to be heard. If you just want to sit down with someone who comes and visits you at your house or someone uh, over your lunch break at work or whatever, if you just want to sort of hammer them with the Bible and tell them what it says, listen, nobody's ever going to listen to you. But they will listen to you if you're willing to listen to them. If you're willing to ask the question, okay, lay it on me. Tell me what you think. Tell me what you believe. I really want to understand where you're coming from. And this is precisely what Paul did. To the Ephesians. He was in Ephesus. And you know what it says. They had filled up a stadium. And then that turned into a riot. And the magistrates came over and said. You, you got you to gotta vacate this place. And so Paul, it says. Paul took his disciples. And they went to the lecture hall of Tyrannus. And it says. And there he took his discussion. Why did Paul have to take a discussion? Because he was dialoguing with Greeks. Over the gospel. And you and I need to be able to dialogue with people who do not think the way we do. And that involves sympathetic listening. Gospel diplomacy also involves being careful not to give the gospel a black eye through rebellion and sin in my own life. doesn't mean we're perfect. Paul wasn't. But it means that you and I are not going to bring reproach upon the gospel by not living a life that is commensurate with the gospel. And gospel uh, diplomacy also means living in the light of repentance when we do fail. The fact of the matter is that sinners sin. And you and I are sinners saved by God's grace. And we have been turned into saints now. But on occasion, you and I will blow it. Sometimes I'm going to lose my temper in an argument. 
Sometimes I'm just going to be pugnacious, and it's just my sinful flesh. And here's what happens. When you and I live in the light of the cross, when we live in the light of repentance, people see the grace of God at work. This is what the grace of God looks like. It's forgiveness and repentance, turning the other way. Gospel diplomacy also is investing in real relationships. You and I need to invest in real relationships. People that we have relationships with, frankly, that we may not have struck up relationships with them in in any other context. But we want to dialogue about our faith. You want to hear what they have to say, and you want to share what you have to say. It also means confronting false doctrines in love. When you hear things that are not biblical truth, you and I need to be able to say, hey man, can I show you in the word where God says it's this way? And do that in a very respectful way. And then lastly, let the message do its work. The gospel is seed sown on the ground. That's the metaphor that Jesus uses in Matthew 13. So Matthew 13, the seed is scattered on all different kinds of hearts. The ground represents all these different kinds of hearts. And it only reproduces in one kind of soil, the receptive soil. You and I don't determine that. Man, I can't, I can't just beat somebody into being receptive soil. I can't do that. You and I need to share the message, share the gospel, and then let the seed of the gospel do its work because it knows what to do. The gospel will reproduce. The gospel will grow in their hearts. Just let God do the work of growth. We need to be kind, relational listeners, but also advocates Gospel diplomacy is not just a listening ear. It's advocacy. If you were a diplomat in a foreign nation, you would be there to advocate for your country of origin. And you and I are there to proclaim the gospel, not just to listen to someone else and what they have to say. You and I are there to proclaim what the truth is and to say this is what the truth is. We advocate for the kingdom. Uh, Would you pray with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up right now. We're going to prepare to take communion. Father, we are just so thankful this morning uh, for the word here. We're so thankful for, for Peter's instruction, for this powerful word that transforms our life. And God, would you help us? Would you help us to sanctify Christ Jesus as Lord? To sanctify him as Lord in our own hearts, in our own minds, to set him apart as holy. And God, would you help us to protect against any forces in our culture that would want to profane his name, to make him less than he is, to diminish the deity or the humanity of Jesus Christ our Lord. And Lord, would you also help us to to be good defenders of the faith? Would you help us to be good defenders of our story against false accusations and good defenders of our gospel against false accusations from our culture? Would you help us, Lord, to be kind and calm and reverent, but to, but to bring the truth to darkness. Would you help us to do that? In Jesus' mighty, powerful name, amen.